Welcome to Inside Stories, where Baltimoreans discuss perspectives on incarceration. Our first guest is Mr. Earl Young. It's not a day that goes by that that I don't remember my victim. You know, one of the things that I, you know, some may think I was crazy for doing it, but to me, I, I don't care what you think. I did it because it, it gave me a peace of mind. Every month I would go to Mothers of Murdered Sons and Daughters. I would put myself on the hot seat. So if those parents, those mothers, fathers, whoever, you know, wanted to be angry, they was there to support each other, but I still went. You know, how do you develop empathy and compassion if, if you don't know the people? You you don't grow if you don't have some type of opposition. When you think when you look at, you know, the simplicity of a seed being placed in the earth and and and, and a soil being compacted upon this this seed. The seed struggles to get free to do what it needs to do. And, and that dirt is opposition. The seed has a purpose. The seed has to break through that hard ground. It wasn't easy. I went to listen. You know, I went to, to hear those mothers out. And from time to time, they would ask me to speak. And I got up there and, you know, just like the first time, and, and it's going to be every time, I'm going to apologize to each and every one of those mothers. Even though I'm not the specific perpetrator that that took the life of their child every mm -hmm. parent i i believe every parent needs to hear a perpetrator apologize for taking their child's life now i didn't hear i didn't hear some other say well you didn't you didn't do it so you shouldn't be apologizing yes i should because you you may die and never hear somebody actually apologize that was on this side of the fence did did it, it help? I don't know. But did it help me? Absolutely. Absolutely. If it didn't help me, I wouldn't keep going. The healing process starts with, with, with being honest. In order for me to grow, I have to peel back the layers. And and I'm still, you know, a, a, a work in progress. You know, I've mm -hmm. been home uh, 20 months, um, give or take a day or two. But it's not reliving every moment of it, but being honest with people. You know, some 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 welcome me and some, you know, have have twisted their eyebrows. But, you know, that's not for me, you know, to judge them because they judging me. August Wilson played Fences uh, some mm -hmm. years ago. And in the play, uh, Troy Maxim used a term that I use regularly. I take the crookest with the straight. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And and that is how I lived my life for a number of years in the system. And that is how I'm living my life now. It, it, it took a minute. It took, it took a few men who seen, who saw in me something that I didn't see in myself. And that was, you're going to make it out of here. You're not like the rest of the juveniles that's running around here. You're not like the little, little, little guys that's going hard. Something different about you, but, it took um, a man who's who's a pillar of the community, you know, to really trick me. And he tricked me. I mean, it's the best tricking I've ever had in my life. He conveyed to me that in light of us being inside the penitentiary, there's, there's a few pockets of sanity and a few pockets of tranquility that we can steal. 
He said, right now it's 99 degrees and you're going out here to play basketball. But guess what? The library is open and every library has air conditioning in it. Man, we can soak up the air conditioning because we know we don't have it in the cells. It didn't take long for him, for, for, for him to say it to me and for it to register in me that you're right. I can play ball tonight or from now on I'll start getting up early in the morning and, and run ball. But you're right. I'm going with, yeah, come on, let's get up to the library. So we go up to the library, and I'm looking out the window. I'm looking out the penitentiary window in a building, looking over at everything. I'm seeing everything but where I'm at. So I'm cool with that. But his ultimate objective was if I came to the library enough, eventually yeah. I picked up a book. So it was, <laughs> it was my mentor and dear friend, Earl Elamine, who who saw in me, believed in me, and tricked me into getting to that library to say, this is where it starts. My intro into uh, the penal system uh, was scary as hell. I mean, I went in not being acclimated to prison system prior to not being acclimated to the juvenile system. So it was shocking all at the very start. I mean, everything was new, uh, the sounds, the smells, the scenery, everything was my, my, my sensory overload was unforgettable. And one of the things about, you know, I, I, I noticed early on was, you know, through visits and, and functions and family days and stuff like that, you know, and, and hearing the guys talk, you know, you hear the brokenness, you hear the broken family parts, you hear them not having, you know, I have five uncles. My father had five brothers and, you know, I was close with all of them, but it didn't, it didn't prevent me from committing the acts that I did in the streets, but in their houses, in their presence, man, I, I gave them the, the utmost respect. So, you know, guys, you start to see the guys didn't have, you know, uh, those, 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 uh, I ain't gonna say role models. I'm gonna say figures because a lot of men uh, are not the epitome of what a role model should be. But a lot of guys didn't have a mother. They had a woman that gave birth to them. You know, a lot of guys didn't have, you know, fathers. They had, you know, individuals who, who, who impregnated their mother. So it, it was something missing. So with me having, you know, a little more of, of uh, a stable family, you know, everybody wanted to know, everybody wanted to see the pictures. You know, you know, when, when you have a loving and adoring family, you know, they want to make you, you know, uh, uh, be a part of every holiday, every event. So, you know, always got the pictures, always got a stack of pictures, family reunions, outings, you know, going. So guys want to see them. So now they are vicariously living through my family life. So it didn't make them envious, but it, it made us close. You know, we, we, I'm getting something from you and you getting something from me. I'm learning, you learning, and you seeing. I came out, uh, July 18, 2019. I'd lost all of my immediate family. I came home to no siblings, no parents, no grandparents. I was with, you know, my friends and family. For 17 years. I mean, daily. We're talking about every day. So now 
for 34 years, I'm with some men, I'm with some brothers, I'm with some individuals, man, who I have developed some serious attachments to. We have watched each other grow. We have watched each other lose family members. We've watched each other gain family members. I've listened to the stories of their lives. They've listened to the stories in my life. You know, it's it's humbling. You know, you have you literally you literally have families that live in the same house that that they don't even communicate. They I mean, they barely communicate. They barely know, you know, what their siblings like or what their siblings don't like. I can't do a lot for for some of the individuals that I grew up with in there. I mean, I literally spent more time with them than I spent with my own family members, my flesh and blood. But I can't I can't get you out. And I damn sight ain't trying to break you out. So all that I can do is put myself in positive circles, try to elevate others' minds about individuals deserving a second chance. If you if you believe I deserve a second chance, then I tell you. One out of ten, I'm a six. I know some tens still in there, but they haven't gotten the opportunity. I think we all have the capacity um, to be the best self or worst self. I'm trying to be the best person I can each and every day. Do I want to see my worst self? Hell to the no. Mm. And, and I pray that, that 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 it ain't in me. So it's almost like that statement kind of maybe even gave you fuel to rise above whatever judge. You know, today I can walk away from being called just about any and everything. And I'm wise enough to know not to argue with an idiot because you're not going to win. You're not Mm going to win the conversation. You're not going to win that. So as long as you don't put your hands on me, I'm cool with that. I'm going to go ahead and walk away and be everything, and I'm going to smile politely and, and let it be. And I'm going to wish you a good day. I'm a, I'm a, I may even pray for you because I, you you or whoever that person is, is is in a state of their lowest self. They're hating themselves, right, more than, than they're hating you. Mm-hmm. But they just ain't conscious enough to know it. I think I've seen my worst. And, and I pray pray to, to our glorious creator that I, I don't have a worst. Some time ago, I started living like every day was the first and last day of the rest of my life. So I'm going to make the day mean more than yesterday. I started believing wholeheartedly that between my birth date and my death date is a dash. I want that dash to speak volumes about me when I'm no longer here. Our next guest is Mr. Gordon Pack. Matter of fact, they didn't call it arrest. They detained me at 15. <laughs> didn't read my Miranda rights uh, in the police station, asked me all of these questions, um, took all the evidence, my clothes, and then released me to the care of my father. About eight hours later, when I'm supposed to begin high school for the first time, ninth grade, an arrest warrant was issued for my for me as an adult. So the police, two police cars came and raided the house. 
uh, stopped the bus, boarded the bus in search of me. I saw him, so I wouldn't hear it in the woods because I seen what was going on. And it went to my homeroom class at the high school. And at that point, my life was really pretty much over. Um, I ended up pleading guilty. When you're a kid, you really don't understand what's taking place in that system. Um, for the most part, the only dialogue I had was like, yes or no. I didn't say anything more because I was intimidated by the whole process. I felt like other people really controlling, dictating things. I didn't understand everything that was involved. Um, my attorneys really represented my parents, not me, because they were paying him. And that's what he went to talk to, not me. The issue where I got sentenced, in my mind, I already knew that was a possibility, but I didn't believe it would happen because the lawyer told me, Kenneth Thompson, I remember his name to this day. He told me, he said, man, chances are you're only going to get like 30, 40 years and they're going to send you to Patuxent and you'll get out while you're still in your early 20s. But the judge did something different. And I understand why he did something different. But when I got sentenced, I was just shocked. I went to prison in 79 as a 15-year-old for rape, kidnapping, and on robbery charges. I actually committed the crimes. And I didn't plead guilty because I committed the crimes. I pled guilty because my parents were suffering so much through this whole process that when the attorney presented that idea to them, they told me it was the best thing to do. They still were in debt and was going through so much hardship, they just wanted to get it over. I would say my father ended up becoming a worse person after my arrest because he kind of blamed himself. Coming up, my father was in the Air Force. He also was a third generation pastor of the family church. As a kid, we was like latchkey kids. My parents would always say, don't go out of the house until one of us get home from work. Tammy, Nettie, and Candy, come to the back door and tell me come out and play. Now, as a kid, I know I wasn't supposed to go out there, but I couldn't resist. So I snuck out of the house and went out there and started playing the game, enjoying myself immensely. What I didn't anticipate was some older junior high school girls in the neighborhood stumbling upon us playing and the dynamics of the game changed. And it kind of like scarred me because now everybody started chasing me. They end up emasculating and molesting me. They end up throwing me on the ground, pulling my clothes off and fighting and all the other stuff, trying to get away and I can't. But basically they scarred me because they told me I wasn't a man. Nobody wanted me. And here I am a seven-year-old. So because I snuck out, I felt like that was my fault and I couldn't tell my parents about it because they would punish me for sneaking out. I got teased at church, teased at school. I got teased at the bus stop and the grocery store. Kids are just cruel. They found a weakness and they just picked and picked and picked. And it gave me a real deep-rooted um, complex. So my parents end up moving to California. Seven years later, my parents returned to the same neighborhood and the same house, and I did not want to be there. And what ended up happening in my mind, I thought everybody saw me as that same little insecure crying kid. It became a big issue for me because I developed these abnormal apprehensions about my sexual performance. I was a virgin. I was down there. I didn't want people to see me the same way. A girlfriend of mine, she confronted me about being scared and being a virgin. I panicked and I was worrying about her because her experience that she was going to tell everybody that I was a lying virgin. I still was a little kid. I had a little penis and all that. I got afraid. So I ended up breaking up with her. 
And by me breaking up with her, that meant I had to stay home because I couldn't hang out on the street anymore because I think she's going to put the word out. My father, who at this time was a flourishing minister at one time, got involved in drugs and alcohol as soon as we moved back down to the area, and it just became a disaster. He felt like I was acting gay, and his way of remedying that problem was to, his drunk, he was drunk at the time, was dragging me to the kitchen, pulling out a stack of porn magazines, put them all on the kitchen table, and told me to figure out what's wrong with me because his son ain't coming up being gay. So within three days later, I went out and committed my crime. So in my mind, I rationalized it'd be safer and easier for me to go out here and assault and experience a person I would never see again, that I had control of that situation and take a chance to, I guess, have sex with one of the girls in the neighborhood who would go and blab all of my business if I didn't meet up to the standards. And it was real stupid thinking as a kid, but that's how I thought as a... 14, 15 year old, you know, and that really led to me going to prison. And then it took years for me to even address those issues because prison is not a place where you expose vulnerabilities. So therapy treatment really helped me. I'm really sorry for what I've done. For 11 years, I had psychotherapy group once a week, tear counseling and individual therapy, remedial treatment programs, like anger manager, uh, sexual things, treatment, a whole lot of different programs. I regret being so scared that I didn't tell anybody what was going on with me at the time when I was a child. I regret not caring about the victim in my case. I regret that because that was a human being too. That was somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's sister, all right? That was a lady down the street, the lady that goes to church. That was somebody that had a right to be respected. And I really regret the harm that I caused her, the direct victims in my case, which be her, her husband, her family, her friends, her loved ones. I regret the harm and stuff that I caused my family, my loved ones, because they struggle with this through the whole time. They, they struggle with this same process. They went through a lot of horrors too. Then you got to look at the courts and the police. You got to look at all of these people impacted by the decision and crime I chose to do. I also have the regret of throwing away my life. I made the choice to do certain behaviors that got me stuck in here. And I regret doing that because there's so many things I missed out on. And so many things I now have to struggle with because of my incarceration. Sometimes we get in these situations, we lose sight of that and just focus on ourselves. And as a result, we feel like we're the victims. Keeping it relative, thinking about what you've done accepting responsibility for it makes this situation a little more easier to bear and it makes you want to change and work on yourself. I've been on a lot of lobbying for the Youth Equity and Safety Act and what it is, it's a, 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 a bill they're trying to pass that modified the existing law that came into effect in 1994. Um, when I got arrested, you could only be tried as an adult if the penalty for the crime that you committed was life or death. In 1994, they changed that. Now, if you're over the age of 13 and you commit a crime that's considered a violent crime for an adult, you can be automatically charged as an adult and go through adjudication adult system. And that has been resulting in a lot of disparity, whereas more black and brown kids are getting locked up from urban areas, 
going into the adult system. Instead of letting them be automatically sent to the adult system, let it start in the juvenile system with people who have some type of clinical background and they're better qualified to make their decisions because police officers do not have that type of background. They just lock you up because you committed the crime. And in most cases, when we, because I put myself in it, when we get in these situations, we don't fare well. I went through my resentment stage, became very rebellious. Now I'm going to the adult system, not just detention system, but adult prison facilities. I'm a little kid. I can't defend myself against these grown men. So I'm worrying about getting hurt. So my issue now becomes just survival. And I did a lot of foul and, and stupid stuff just to preserve myself, just to save my ass, for lack of a better word. Then when I got like 18, 19, I felt like I'm an adult now. I'm grown. I can do what I want to do. And I went through this phase of trying to act like I was tough because I had a life sentence. And needless to say, that, that didn't go well. I got stabbed 17 times while I slept in the dormitory. Thought I was going to die. And then me being stupid, when I got out of the hospital and got back, I felt like I had to get some get back. And uh, I ended up getting stabbed again two weeks later. That really gave me an eye opener, made me realize that just because you have a life sentence doesn't make you tough. So I realized that I was above my head and it made me start looking at ways I could change and become better. I came out November 14th, but I have a job for a nonprofit as a parole advocate, which is just lovely for me because I was doing this stuff on the inside before I got out. Now I have greater resources at my disposal. And now I get to talk to the parole commissioners one-on-one as an equal. I have counsel at-risk youth for like 10 years, 10 years, 10 years. I was being involved in a program called the Reason Straight Program. It was a flip side of scared straight, as opposed to just scaring people and trying to get people to see the horrible realities of prison. We sat and had counseling sessions where we talked about specific things relating to prison. And during this process, I ran into quite a few groups that had, like the Pegasus group at the Woodburn Center. It's in Baltimore, but Kids who have deviated or have like sexual offenses. So what end up happening, I would be able to talk to those groups specifically about my situation, or it could be another group that's unrelated, but similar situations. Because what I find is that everybody feels shame. Everybody feels fear. Everybody feels hurt. Those are normal things. But the idea is how we address those particular things. So when it comes to children, my position would be, be honest with yourself and be open to talk about different things. Everybody, because kids, sometimes when we kids, I know myself, I didn't care about anybody that was outside of my neighborhood. They weren't my relatives. They weren't my peers. They weren't the parents of my peers. They didn't come from my school or my church. I felt like I didn't have to care about them at all because they had no relevance in my life. And that dehumanization process allowed me to do a lot of things because as kids, we were taught to go outside of our neighborhood to steal, go outside of our neighborhood to fight. We were taught that. And that was the stupidest thing in the world for us to get, because as we grow older, we we foster or believe in those same things. So when it comes to children, that's the first thing I would try to teach them is that we're all connected. 
Just because somebody doesn't look like you, just because they don't come from where you are, just because they don't share the same religious beliefs, it doesn't give you a right to be disrespectful or to harm them. Our final guest is Mr. Michel Pascal. You know, when you are born and raised in a violent family, you die or you survive. That's it. So my life was my uh, school of meditation. And uh, naturally, to survive in a very stressful and violent environment, I developed my monastery, I will say, the monastery in my mind. I think the best school, this is a school of the life. This is when we are in a violent family that we must find a way or we fall down in addiction, we fall down in violence, we, we reproduce what we receive or we recycle what we receive. I will say based on my own experience. When I was a child, I was abused hein, during many years, domestic violence, psychological violence, etc. And I, there is a church close my home. And I came in the church to spend a lot of time when I was a child, seven years, eight years. And I realized that there is no life without peace. There is no life without peace. Amity Foundation is uh, probably the biggest and uh, the oldest foundation in California for the reinsertion of the prisoners. Amity. At Amity Foundation, we have a holistic approach uh, with uh, nutrition, sport, motivation, different uh, medicine, of course, medical approach, etc., different approach. And since uh, five years, close six years, mm. I direct the meditation program or new approach of meditation. And I say to the students, I am not your meditation teacher. You are not my students because for me, there is no teacher. There is no students. There is an exchange of energy. The thing is, I was very interested since I was a child by the question, how can we meditate when we are unable to meditate? I mean, how can we calm our mind when we have too much conflict at home, when we have too much money pressure, when life is too much difficult? when we are unable to be concentrated. Because as you know, the brain is running all the time. So when someone was say to me, Michel, take a deep breath, just take a breath for me, it was not possible. I was unable to be focused on my breath because when you are abused, when life is difficult, uh, when you have a lot of money problem, this is a difference between the theory and the reality. In, theor in theory, of course, we need to meditate 10 minutes per day, 30 minutes per day. We need to be focused 
on the breath, etc. Me, I was unable. My life was too much difficult. So from my own experience and from my monastic life, I naturally, I create a new way of meditation based on two points. First, we meditate, we calm the mind in the stressful situation. Because if we quiet the mind in nature or in a yoga studio, this is beautiful. But when we go back to our daily stress, when we go back to our money problem, to our daily life, when we go back to the traffic, to the problem at school, at the university, we crash again. So we train the mind not outside of the stress, but inside the stress. For example, I train the firemen of New York in Times Square. I train Uber drivers on the freeway at the rush hour in Los Angeles, etc. Second point, and for me, it was the most important. We cannot make any effort. In our approach of meditation with the prisoners, there is no breathe exercise. There is no concentration. There is no effort. There is no tips. There is no challenge. At the beginning of our class, many years ago, One of the prisoners said to me, Michel, I, I come to your meditation class, but if you say to us, take a deep breath, be grateful, be positive, you are not respectful if you say that. Because you don't realize our life is difficult. Just to copy-paste your mindfulness map on our world, And I said to the prisoner, I, I gave him a big hug. And I say, what you say? This is exactly the heart of my life, the heart of this new approach of meditation. So if we cannot talk to someone's stress, because the brain is running all time, and if we cannot ask an effort to the person, and you know, when we say to someone, just take a breath, we don't realize that just to take a breath, it's a huge effort when we have too much money pressure, when we don't know how to pay our lease, when we have a lot of conflict, a lot of addiction, a lot of crazy information in our mind, when our brain is running all the time, when we are addicted to the social media, to, to when our brain is a hub. So, Of course, before to say, oh, just take a breath, it was easy. But our world has totally changed. We must adapt meditation. So if we cannot talk to someone's stress, what can we do? Mm. We can tune the person on a calming vibration. Means at the moment, we start to guide the meditation. We don't ask any effort to the person and just In our approach, the person closed the eyes and, oof, you know, immediately the prisoner or any person say, oof, I release my tension. But the hoof, this is the key because we know in neuroscience and that at the moment we release the tension. What's happening in the brain? We reduce the cortisol, the hormone of the stress, and we upgrade the serotonin the hormone of the well-being. So we become addicted to the serotonin. We become addicted to the peace sensation. And we replace, we replace the addiction of the stress by the addiction of the calmness, of the peace, with no effort 
in one second. And we say, oh my gosh, I, I feel better. Refilled, refilled, like at Starbucks. <laughs> and we have another session. And it's not in six months we progress. No, we progress in one second. Because as you know, every emotion, it's an addiction. Every emotion, it's a neurochemical addiction. So at the moment, at the second, you feel oof, better. Naturally, we want to improve again this sensation. Why? Because calmness, this is our nature. No one is born stressed. And everyone, when we are stressed, we don't feel good because this is not our nature. So when we calm the mind, we go back to our true nature. It's a sort of cognitive re-education. We re-educate the brain like that. In the middle of the stressful situation, in one second, the brain has understood. The neurochemical message goes in our body. It is not an opinion. It's a physical sensation. <laughs> Meditation, it's not a technique. It's a transmission of energy. So as a teacher, we must be what we say. The benefit of our session depends on the benefit of the calming mind of the teacher. This is more than a technique. This is a transmission of energy. This is the energy that we share. The, the best answer for your question and for your friend followers, uh, we make a practice together in one minute. Simple. I snap three times, we close our eyes during one minute, and at the end of the minute, I snap three times, we open our eyes. That's it. I snap three times, and just we close our eyes. We are sitting down like a mountain. We do Nothing, just we are sitting down like a mountain and we visualize a mountain. We see the mountain is stable, grounded and in our world we need stability. So we see a mountain, we see the stability of the mountain, and we breathe in mentally the stability of the mountain, like that. Keep our breath, keep stability, exhale stability. And we feel the stability of the mountain in all our body. When we meditate like a mountain, we become a mountain.
and we open our eyes slowly. Mm -hmm. This is a practice to recycle the emotion. We don't keep the bad emotion. We don't talk about the bad emotion. We don't try to know why we were, we were abused, except now. We are interested by one question. How can I feel better now in the present moment? So we transform the dark to light. I, I will say to you that for me, meditation, it's a sort of martial art. We, we transform the dark to light. This is Tonglen. We, we transform the challenge in a fantastic opportunity to be happy every day. To be happy, I will say, not a naive happiness, but a divine happiness. An happiness who doesn't depend from any circumstances. Oh, I have a new girlfriend. Oh, my girlfriend, leave me today. I have a new job. I lose my job. Not to be the yo-yo, you know, the yo-yo of the emotion, but to develop a quality of peace, happiness, like a child, because it's a, it's an happiness grandest than ourselves. Grandest than our human happiness. It is a, a divine happiness. So at Amity, we don't progress step by step. No. There is no, we don't grow. There is no progression. The guys, they feel immediately better. To forgive for the prisoners, this is extremely important. So there is a, a moment we can forgive with a heart. I will say we can forgive 80%, 90%, 99, but sometimes 1% stay in the subconscious. So what can we do? We offer our human forgiveness to a, a divine forgiveness. And when I say divine, it is not a religious. It's a, a quality of forgiveness grandest than ourselves. When I say divine, I will say the word that I cannot see the world that I cannot explain, the world that I don't understand. We must accept that we don't understand. There is something grandest than ourselves. So this is this divine happiness that uh, I have the blessing to learn in this difficult family. And I love my parents. They are in the sky. They were my first spiritual teacher. Because we, we progress only when life is difficult. Thank you for listening to Inside Stories, Perspectives on Incarceration. For full interviews, please visit www.filmartsbaltimore.org slash inside hyphen stories hyphen gallery. This work was made possible by Baltimore Youth Film Arts, Johns Hopkins University, and the Mellon Foundation.